Okay, so hi guys, welcome. Welcome Ryan and Kelsey again. Kelsey, so nice to see you again. I'm glad you joined us. Yes, thanks for having me again. Yeah, it was a pleasure to have you in my class before. So I'll introduce you to my class and then we'll introduce you guys. So this is Abnormal Psychology at Hunter College. And usually we have about 100 people, but he decided not to show up as much today. So we'll see what we're gonna do about that. But we have students that potentially will have a future or a career in psychology or clinical psychology. We have med students or potential med students here. I think we have nursing. Any other um, concentrations that I didn't mention? So meds, um, nursing and psychology. Anyone else from a different degree here? Uh, music. And music. But we have potentially a lot of different providers, right? Which is really important from many different angles. Um, so it's a privilege to have you guys again. And um, so then I will introduce you or I'll briefly introduce you so you guys can introduce yourself. So Ryan has been very gracious and since, I don't know, the fifth time or fourth time that he's doing a guest lecture in my classes and he's educating people on people with XXY. He has created um, an organization called Living with XXY um, and he's gonna discuss this and I believe that Kelsey recently joined in, correct? Yep, right. that's correct. So it's a pleasure to have both of you and um, if Ryan or Kelsey, if you want to introduce the organization, you want to introduce yourself, and it'll be nice. And welcome. We're very grateful yeah. you guys found time to be here. Yeah, thank you for having us. So as uh, Tomic said, my name is Ryan Briganti. I'm 37 years old. I'm born and raised in San Diego, California. Um, I was born with a genetic condition where I was born with an extra X chromosome. So I have something called Klinefelter syndrome, or also known as XXY. Um, many, of the many of the people in our community prefer to call it XXY because when you say Klinefelter syndrome, there's a negative connotation around the word syndrome. And um, many of the men in our community, um, let's see, the, some of the statistics are one in 500 males um, will have Klinefelter syndrome, but only 25% only will get diagnosed at some point in their lifetime. So 75% of the people that have XXY will die never knowing. Um, also, Klinefelter syndrome is more common than Down syndrome, but nobody knows about it because we're hiding it in plain sight. Um, so I started an organization called Living with XXY, a nonprofit organization, uh, November 6, 2019. Um, and I'll get more into it, but I want to introduce Kelsey. And so I was diagnosed, I was diagnosed in utero. Um, my mom found out through an amnio. And I was told at the age of nine that I had Kleinfelder syndrome. And Kelsey is the mom of a son that has XXY. So can you introduce yourself? Yeah. So my name is Kelsey and my son um, was born without having any genetic testing done. So we found out later in life when he was 10 years old and um, he has the same um, condition, 47XXY. We call it simply XXY in our house and he was told right away at 10 and he is almost 14 right now. Mm -hmm. Tommy, do you want me to just talk like I normally do or do you want to ask me yeah, questions? Yeah, or? Definitely. So maybe you can start with why is it important to have this guest lecture? Like from your perspective, why are we doing this constantly every semester as much as possible? Why are we educating people from what you guys think versus what's presented in textbooks and class? 
Absolutely. So um, with Kleinfelter syndrome, it was diagnosed in 1942 by Harry Kleinfelter. And so our community, unfortunately, has had 80 years of misinformation. So when you read about Kleinfelter syndrome online or you Google it, there's a lot of really outdated studies, a lot of misinformation, things that haven't changed. And so the kid, the doctors now and people in psychology, people that are learning about Kleinfelter syndrome now in their textbooks are still continuing to learn information from 30, 40, 50 years ago. A lot of the imagery online um, that you see of Kleinfelter syndrome, just like it depicts this um, person that could be potentially um, aggressive, go to jail, more likely to end up in jail, or um, depicts like a, a mental retardation, which we don't even use in, in terminology anymore. And so the reason why um, like our perspective is really crucially important is because you see the lived experience and you see a lot of the people that um, don't come out of the shadows with this diagnosis. And with living with XXY, I, I started this organization because in 2017, I went to a conference and I met people for the first time in my life at 31 years old with this condition. I never Googled it up until that point, even though I was told at the age of nine. Um, and when I Googled it, it just blew my mind what was online about me. And I was like, what's online is not me. There's got to be other guys out there with this condition. They're just like me. And so I, be, I, I, I kind of went on a quest to find people. And I traveled to Australia and New Zealand, traveled all around the United States. And I met all these amazing men um, and little boys and, and families that had kids with XXY that were nothing what it depicted, what, it, what like the books and, and the literature said about our, our condition. And so I just started a YouTube channel in September of 2017. And that is kind of like what has taken me on this journey to start this nonprofit, to change this misinformation, to give, to give people in our community a voice. Because what's happening now is the outside, the doctors, everyone else, the psychologists, everyone is telling us who we are. What, and the, the, the health problems you're going to have, we've had plenty of doctors tell us like, oh, you're not going to be able to do that. You're, there's no point in you going to college, like all these horrible things. And, and now what's even more important is families that are being diagnosed with Kleinfelter syndrome in utero, the mothers are being told to terminate their pregnancies that try again, that your, your son's going to be mentally retarded. He's not, you're going to have to take care of him his whole life. Um, like all these like horrible things that are just complete misrepresentations of our community. And so it's really good for us to talk about, to you all, to all of you about, you know, what you might learn in a textbook about our condition is not, is, is very unlikely to find someone that's going to have all of those traits. Now, the biggest thing here is that I'm going to talk a lot about XXY throughout this, this class, but the biggest thing here is it's a spectrum. And when you read about it or when you Google it online, you never see the word spectrum. So some of the individuals, um, there's, there's a condition within XXY. So I have non-mosaic XXY. So it means all my cells are XXY. There are men in our community where their cells are, they're considered mosaic. So they have some XY cells and some XXY. Um, one of the big things here though is with our condition, um, our bodies don't make testosterone. And so we have, a lot of us have to use some type of testosterone supplementation and then we're infertile. So we can't have kids. And a lot of the men um, choose to do donor sperm or adopt 
Just because we can't have biological kids doesn't mean we can't be fathers. Um, there is a surgery, it's called microtests, and it's a um, medical intervention surgery that they can do to try to extract sperm, but it's, it's really rare to have success in our community with this. Um, Kelsey, what is, what is kind of your um, thoughts on that question? Yeah, so I have a, a very similar, but from a different angle perspective as Ryan, just I'm a mother to uh, three boys and, and Elliot is the oldest and he's the one who has XXY. So I think part of my passion from just talking with anybody about XXY is, you know, destigmatizing anything that may be out there because the research is so old and it's honestly, unlike anything you've probably ever seen um, when it comes to other diagnoses, it's just light years behind um, in far, as far as textbooks and what people know. So obviously that's one thing, um, but what the nonprofit has been able to do is create a safe space for people to, to talk and to share, um, to, you know, we use the word coming out, but it's really just sharing that they have XXY in a safe space and feeling supported. So I think keeping that alive for my son and then for future kids and for adult men is, is super important to me so that there is a sense of community. Good, thank you. And maybe we should have done this at the very beginning, but how many of you know or have been aware what Clyphenter syndrome is or XXY? And if you are, you know it, or you've been aware or exposed, can you please raise your hand or just get an idea? There's one, two like strong hands and like a few like kind of. So that's very telling, right? So what we're doing, what you guys are doing, I'm just creating space for it, it's incredible. So once again, thank you for being here. So since they might not know exactly um, what it means to be born with XXY, maybe we should go back to it and fully describe it, right? Do you guys mind or? Yeah, not a problem. Kelsey, go ahead. Yeah. So again, not a medical professional and I never will be or pretend to be. But the way that I understand it is, is just essentially that your body does not create testosterone, um, especially noticeable when um, a boy is going through puberty. So a lot of times, you know, there are things coming out about early testosterone, which is a great resource, resource um, and research avenue. But what happens is the brain is sending signals to the testicles to produce testosterone and that's not happening, that the body is not making it. So there is um, a fault in, in the production of the, the testicles, but the brain keeps sending the message to create the testosterone. So that's really the essential, um, the overall medical like basic breakdown from my understanding, but the way that it affects um, different parts of the body, mental health, um, all of those things, is beyond just how it affects the testicles, right? So there's a lot of talk about um, one thing that's kind of common, I shouldn't say kind of, but fairly common is tall height. Um, Ryan is pretty tall and I know you can't tell now, but like one thing that's pretty common with guys with XXY is tall. Um, and my son Elliot is, you know, taller than me. He's probably five nine and he's 13 and like hasn't even gone through puberty yet. So that's a, that's a pretty common thing, but the testicular failure is essentially what Kleinfelter's is and um, the symptoms and characteristics are what comes from that testicular failure. 
So to, to add on that, so one of the most common things with our community, and, and it's basically testicular, testicular failure, but the small testicles is a very, is like one of the reasons why men get diagnosed with this. They go into their doctor, something there's might be, they might have another secondary characteristic. And then their doctor finally notices that later on in their life that they have small testicles that aren't the average of what they're supposed to be at that age. And then that, that's when they start doing testing and they start doing uh, like some luteinizing hormone and some follicle stimulating hormone testing to see uh, if those are elevated. A lot of the guys get diagnosed, those are elevated hormones and then the testosterone is usually lower. But some of the other symptoms are like cognitive. A lot of kids, um, young kids might experience uh, speech delay. They might um, experience like having to use um, like gross motor skills or a low muscle tone. And then some of the other things are because of the lack of testosterone, some of the cognitive learning, uh, there's a lot of, there's probably a lot of learning challenges. I experienced them uh, from my personal growing up. I had an IEP, um, exp like expressive language can be really difficult for us getting out, out of our brain, like what we want to say um, versus what we, like what we say and what we want to say are two different things. Um, there might be some missed social cues um, but it's a spectrum. It's also depending upon how early you got diagnosed and if you needed early intervention, were those services there when you needed them? Um, and then like less or reduced body hair or facial hair is one of them. Like some of the guys can't grow beards at all or they're spotty. They don't, they might not have chest hair or body hair um, or leg, some, of the, some of them don't even have leg hair. And that's all kind of based off of that testosterone. Um, Let's see, what are some of the other, so some of the guys experience glottocomastia, which is man boobs. Um, and we, all of, all of our weight for most of the guys in our community goes to our lower abdomen. So we have more of like a pear shaped body, like narrow shoulders and, and wider hips, but that's not always the case with every single guy in our community. 35% um, of the men in our community will have some type of glottocomastia at some point in their lifetime but it's not a, the, the numbers, a lot of these numbers are based off of really old statistics. Um, so, but a lot of us are just hiding in plain sight. You would never know if I was at your college walking around New York city or whatever, you would never know that I have this condition. And, and that's, that's the hardest part about raising awareness about something that people can't see. And what, what also is really hard is that people in our community, they don't want to be seen. They don't want to be open. They don't want to. So a lot of them live their lives in the shadows and a lot of families, when they get this diagnosis early on, they don't want to tell family or friends. They don't want their kid to be treated differently or to stick or to be part of this stigma that that isn't their son or isn't them. And so what, what we've been able to do is create a safe space where guys are coming forward. Now we have guys talking about male infertility that got diagnosed trying to have kids. Um, they're talking about becoming a father. We have guys that are opening up in high school and different age ranges, just sharing their story about how they got diagnosed, when they got diagnosed, how it affected them, but then also their successes, what they're good at and how they're happy in their life and how like a lot of the misinformation out there doesn't say who they are. And that's, I think that's the hardest part about this is that we are hiding in plain sight. Good. Um, and I always, I think I said this is the same, same thing at NYU recently. There are also positive components to it, the compassion. And I think it was exactly the same thing that we spoke about, right? 
Compassion and what else? What are some deposits? Empathy and like really kind. Um, we're right. We're a lot of us are right brain thinkers, so we're very uh, hands-on kinetic learners. So you have to show us how to do something or teach us how to do something. You can't really tell us how to do something. Um, a lot of guys really excel in all the creative aspects, music, uh, like photography, chef, um, the careers of like um, what electric, elect, electrician, plumber, like a lot of the hands-on careers. They're really passionate about their lives. Um, I went to the Culinary Institute of America in Hyde Park, New York, which is just north of you guys near Poughkeepsie. Um, I pursued a career in culinary arts. I was a chef for over 10 years working in fine dining restaurants from uh, Manhattan for a little while to Nantucket, San Diego, Colorado. So I, I pursued a passion for working with my hands and, and realizing that this is what I was good at and not, not having other people tell me, oh, you're not going to college or you're not doing this, you're not doing that. I just focused with what, what I was good at. And we're trying to help guys in our community embrace them by accepting this. I think accept in anything in life, acceptance is the biggest thing is accepting yourself for who you are and not trying to fit in with different groups of people that you don't fit in with. Um, and so it's, it's all about giving, giving them the tools to accept themselves. This is part of our DNA. It's not going anywhere. You can't change this and getting them to accept what they're good at and not focus on the negatives, not focus on what they can't do or what they've been told by other people that they can't do. Yeah, I would just like to add one thing. And um, I think those are all amazing um, and sort of standalone um, um, sides that, but I think that receptive communication, we, Ryan mentioned earlier, expressive language can be difficult, but I think one thing we don't often recognize and I'm faulty of it is that the receptive communication. And so hearing what somebody's saying and listening and being engaged. So maybe can't get it out, but the receptive language is super strong um, for a lot of the people that I know and, and especially for my son. And even at a young age, he tested really high um, in receptive language skills. So he was always do what was going on and processing and thinking and trying to understand, um, but not always able to get it out at the speed other people can. And thank you. And what about prevalence or incidence rates? Because it's actually more common than people think, right? Like, can, can one of you talk about it? Like, if you remember the numbers or approximately, or like how often or how many, or, you know. I mean, other than other, I mentioned it earlier, like one in 500 males by the NIH and a couple other resources, like one in 500 will, will be, will have Kleinfelder syndrome, but only 25% will get diagnosed. I think one of the big things here to recognize that this is a very um, common um, saying in the autism community is when you meet one person with autism, you meet one person with autism. It's very same with Kleinfelder syndrome. When you meet one person with Kleinfelder syndrome, you meet one person. Um, even though a lot of us share a lot of similarities, I think that's been the hard part about uh, starting the nonprofit is I wanted to focus on the positives because all I saw online were the negatives. Every, up until I started this nonprofit organization, when you Googled Kleinfelter syndrome, you saw photos of guys standing with their arms out naked that were photos from jail from like the 60s. You saw like pictures of kids with one eye that were like one eye that was Photoshopped. Um, you saw like just all these distorted images of, of people, black strips through people's eyes, standing there naked, like at like framing them in a way. 
Um, and then there was an illustration on Google. When you Googled Kleinfelder syndrome from your phone, it popped up an image. And that image is no longer around because we're, we've started, we've created this community to like stand up to these things. Um, Kelsey, do you have any, I just kind of lost my train of thought. So No, that's okay. Um, I, you pretty well covered the prevalence, but I think the hard thing, and Ryan and I just talked about it this morning, and it goes back to research and updating and things like that is, you know, where we don't ever really know what's, what's going on. And so one out of 500 is the best guess that we have, but we, there's so much going on and essentially a lack of um, research that it's hard to, to keep tabs on it. So that is one thing that I know that Ryan and the nonprofit have been trying to work on is, is getting the actual numbers and getting the data so that information can be shared and it can be trusted. So yeah, one in 500 is the last thing we looked up today. Thank you. And so once again, we spoke about it at the very beginning that the reason we do it because a lot of this misinformation, misrepresentation and stigma, it's still in textbooks in terms of psychology and medicine and other um, sort of majors that are being taught to people. So if you don't investigate, you don't know, you get a paragraph about it and you're going to get complete misre misrepresentation of what that actually is and looks like and how people with it um, actually respond to everything. And so that's why we have you guys. So I'm very, very grateful. Are there any questions so far? Do you understand like what it is? Like, is anything that needs to be clarified? Please, let's see if we can hear you. Uh, yes. Can um, you hear? In, yeah. In terms of testosterone production, I know that for every human being, we all need testosterone. How, so uh, how does it work? Is it like, do you need supplementation or like what's the process there? Yeah. So, so what's, what, what's usually, what usually happens is that, um, your doctor, like once you get a diagnosis, usually, so usually they don't do a karyotype right away. Usually they have the, like Kelsey can probably speak on how much, how much testing they had to go through to get the, the diagnosis. Um, usually a kid, a rep that's going to about to start puberty that has this diagnosis already around like 10, 11, 12, they're starting to do blood work. With what we see endocrinologists as our primary doctor for this condition, we see that it's recommended by whoever created it that it's twice a year to see these doctors. So a lot of people only get blood work done twice a year unless they ask otherwise. So they'll be testing their free testosterone and their total testosterone um, and some other, like there's a lot of other testing that they can do but re strictly related to testosterone. They're, they're testing those levels and they're seeing where they're at. And as they start to go through puberty, they will notice if their FSH and their LH levels are, are higher, and then that, which is telling their testicles to make more, more testosterone. And then their um, testosterone might, levels might be lower or there might be in the mid range. And so a doctor will make that call on, and this is the hard part, it's like not a lot of the doctors in our community, I'm not a doctor, never will be, um, but a lot of the doctors in our community don't know these things. And so a lot of families, we have to become our biggest advocates. So we have to advocate to the doctors. We have to tell them like the different types of testosterone that are out there um, or like just a lot of different, there's a lot of different variables and a lot of unknown information around testosterone. There's a lot of stigma also around testosterone. A lot of people think like bodybuilder, right? Like anyone that says like, oh, I'm on TRT, they're, they think like, oh, you're doing it for the gym. You're doing it to get like jacked, you know, jacked. And that's, 
that's not the case for us because most of us, our body doesn't make testosterone. So it's like, it's, it's, it's basically replacing what our body is supposed to make every early morning. Like that's when a typical male's testosterone levels or testosterone is made. It's like early in the morning. So the different, I guess like that, that's kind of like how, and at puberty, like they, they, um, they introduce this testosterone and then the variables can change. There's like a intermuscular injection. There's a subcutaneous injection, which you do in your belly. Um, if you want to see these injections, if you go to our YouTube channel, um, like living with XXY and I do a bunch of injections in different places, um, all around the United States, just trying to normalize, like I have to give myself testosterone injections once a week. And I've been doing that since I was 13. So like 24 years, um, of once a week injections. That's a, that's a lot when you think about it. Um, but it, this is just part of our normal life. And so that's like an acceptance piece that a lot of people have to accept is like, this is just part of me. It's, it's just like an insulin needs, like a diabetic needs insulin. This is, we need testosterone. Um, and it, a lot of the men that like, for instance, okay, there's sub Q, there's intramuscular, there's a patch, there's gel, like a cream that you can rub on your arms. Um, there is like a, there's a new like EpiPen called Ziostid. There's a pill called Jatenzo. And then there's a Testo pill, which is like a Tic Tac that is inserted into your, into your like love handle region. Um, all of these different variations of testosterone, not all of them are covered by insurance. Um, that's a whole nother conversation for a different day is trying to get the right medical, like we need this stuff to survive, but yet our insurance companies won't cover it for us. They'll just give us the cheapest possible method, which is usually the injectables. And that can be really challenging because little kids don't like needles, adults don't like needles. And so there's a lot of like pushback. A lot of guys in our community don't want to take testosterone because they don't want to deal with the pharmacy. They don't want to deal with like it's a controlled substance. They don't want to deal with the needles. They don't want to deal with all of that. So they just prefer not to, um, even though they don't realize the possible harm that they're doing to themselves. Um, I could, I could go on. I I've got a, there's a, if you want to learn more about that specifically, there's a 16 minute video of me talking about testosterone in general throughout my whole life on our YouTube channel. Um, yeah. Did that answer your question? Uh, yes, thank you so much. It's uh, because I know testosterone is very important for every human being, as for females, for males. So I would wanted to know like more about that. So you pretty much covered it. I have one more, if that's okay. Yeah, of course. Uh, so you mentioned your endocrinologist being your primary care provider uh, once you get your diagnosis. And you mentioned that sometimes they need to educate your doctor. And uh, so can you help us know more about like, uh, if you meet a provider that is not very aware of the condition, doesn't know about it at all, or like haven't met a case of that, do you get a lot of pushback? And if yes, how do you advocate for yourself? Uh, yeah, that's, so that's a like everyone, ever since I started doing this, basically, so if I go back to my life, I, I basically did my testosterone injections, did my blood work, went to my doctor's appointment twice a year, and then lived my life. So all the way up until 31, I never questioned anything. I never questioned my testosterone levels. I did ask a little bit because it changed from, my levels did change. And so they changed my interval of, of how, I went from once a month to once every three weeks to once every two weeks to once a week throughout the course of my life. But um, 
advocating is super difficult, especially a lot of the men in our community don't even know anything about their diagnosis other than like the really simple basics. But when you, a lot of families and Kelsey can speak on this, a lot of families are really upset on the medical system because they don't know the information. And we, I understand why that that is, but um, advocating for yourself is extremely difficult for some people. Um, but we are our biggest advocates. And that's one thing that I tell all parents when they come to us is like, you have to be your biggest, ad, your son's biggest advocate. You have to be his voice. And because he doesn't have his voice, you have to advocate for him. And so trying to talk with doctors, I've had a few endocrinologists in my lifetime um, due to just specifically like me trying to talk to them and they won't listen. And they're like, oh, well, I know what's best. And it's like, well, so that's something that comes up is like, um, I, I would say like as becoming a physician or becoming a, a clinical psychologist or whatever your career is, is like, make sure you're listening to your patients talk, like make sure you're listening to them instead of thinking that you know what they're going through. Um, you, there's a lot of people that could really learn a lot. Um, Kelsey, could you kind of speak on dealing with physicians? Yeah, so um, I have been able to live the experience of a parent advocating for their child and it it is frustrating. Like Ryan mentioned, a lot of us are, are angry um, in the fact that, I live in Minnesota, if you couldn't tell by my accent. Um, so I live really close to Mayo. And I feel like at least in the Midwest, Mayo is the place, Mayo, um, and they are really great, but I, I sort of had built them up to be the pinnacle of healthcare. And, you know, when Elliot and I had our appointment, they were very honest, which I was appreciative about, but they're like, we don't really know. There's a lot of like, we just do our best. So. Ryan was mentioning earlier the testosterone levels and checking every six months or so. I, I really tried to get down like, okay, what number are you looking for? When we hit this number, what does it mean? When we hit that number, what does it mean? When will he start testosterone? Like, what are you looking for? And they just had to use their best judgment between the numbers and what he was experiencing or reporting like depression or, or extreme exhaustion or things like that to make the best guess. Um, and so it's difficult. There's not a lot of information and it's that spectrum. So there isn't sort of a formula that can be applied to everyone. So I do understand that, but um, it does get frustrating when the people who are supposed to be the experts sort of shrug their shoulders and say, yeah, I don't know either, this is, this is crazy. Um, so that is another important reason just to talk for us to talk to anybody who will listen, honestly, because I think the more people that have even heard the term um, will then be that much more likely to share something that could be passed along in the community. There's, there's, one, more, there's, one, more thing I wanted, there's one more thing I wanted to add to that. So a lot of the times it's like a lot, a lot of the, uh, not, not just with doctors, but also with education system, a lot of the time it's not their fault. Like the, there is outdated information out there. So what they potentially could learn could be outdated. There is a lot more that they can do, but endocrinology in general, a lot of it is specialized around diabetes and not around XXY. And so that's, I think the biggest thing that I've been trying to tell our community is like, we are the ones that have to change that. We have to, our community has to open up to the world and let people know that we exist. 
And then when more people open up and tell people that, hey, like I've got this condition, then more research might be interested in researching more about us. And then that is how the data has changed. And then that's how the next generation, the school books, the textbooks, so on and so forth, get changed. And so that's really hard to kind of go to our community, tell people that they need to be open when they Google it, they see the photos, they see the stigma, and they'd rather just live in the shadows and continue on with their life, just blending in, instead of like challenging that, that doctor perspective or challenging those textbooks where people are learning about it. Mm -hmm. Do we have any questions so far, please? Um, since there's like a... Can you hear it? Yep. Since there are multiple aspects to this syndrome, like aside from like the physical issues, people, when they get diagnosed, uh, they're not usually excited about that. I mean, I can imagine it could be emotionally devastating, especially for a parent or like one of the stories on your website, I believe it was a woman who found out she was pregnant with a baby that had XXY, right? So I can imagine that there's like a lot of emotional components that come with the diagnosis. I was wondering if you knew if there are like any other services that are distributed like therapeutically to try to handle that or if they're aware of that. So I, I think like I'll speak on one of the, just because I talked to a lot of mothers that are in utero, I talked to a lot of guys that are getting diagnosed, um, trying to have kids. It's all about how they're told, especially the mothers in utero. If the, mo if the mother in utero is like getting the diagnosis and a lot of them, there's a lot of stories on our website, on our blog section about these people. And there's a lot of, uh, we have a podcast as well. There's a lot of podcasts about this. If they're told by their doctor, like, oh, you should probably terminate and try again is like basically what they're being told. Then of course, even if, even if they decide to keep the child, they're going to keep that diagnosis locked, locked under like locked in a safe. They're not going to tell anyone. We've had people be like, we don't even want to tell our own parents, um, you know, and, and they're trying to process things with, within that. And then there's a lot of men that are being diagnosed later on in life, trying to have kids and they live their whole life, not knowing that they have this. And then they find out they're infertile. A lot of them could care less about the other stuff about Kleinfelder syndrome. It's almost like they're given like two diagnoses. Like here you're infertile. And then here you have this associated syndrome that's attached. It makes what has made you infertile. Um, some of the guys, I, I would say most of the guys have to go through a long grieving process before they can open up or talk about it. But there are, there've been a few, my really good friend, Tyler, who lives here in San Diego, um, he is like, he has a tattoo on his back. He got, he got 47XXY tattooed on his back and he tries to find every possible conversation to educate people about it. Um, but Kelsey, can you kind of speak on her exact question? Yeah, so as far as services, we, for a little backstory, Elliot was in, early intervention services from a young age. Um, I luckily was presented with the option where I worked to get him in speech and OT and PT at 18 months. Before we had any clue what his diagnosis was, you know, I noticed some communication delay and just because that was my field, um, I was hyper aware, probably too aware, um, but he had been receiving services really throughout his whole life until he was 10. And that included, you know, talk therapy at some times, um, 
one, one area that I think would be an amazing therapeutic service for kids um, like this is social skills groups. It's super common um, with some diagnosis like ASD, but it's not in this area. And unfortunately, this is one of those weird insurance things. Like even though my son Elliot would be totally appropriate um, for a social skills group, he can't qualify because he doesn't have an ASD diagnosis. So um, that's one area, a, a huge need, but otherwise uh, most of us are just using traditional therapy um, when, you know, if, and when needed. Uh, and speaking to the grieving process and the mental load that that carries on the parent side, um, because that Elliot was diagnosed when he was older and we had already experienced a few of the sort of hiccups of childhood and therapies along the way, it, it, felt for a moment like relief. And I don't know if any of you have had that experience where you might be sick or someone in your family is sick and, you know, the news is devastating, but at least you know what it is. You kind of know what, how to handle things. Um, and it can give you a sense of purpose and direction. So I definitely was able to balance that, um, benefit with the grieving. Um, and then like Ryan said, adult men are grieving, parents are grieving, but Elliot was, you know, a, an elementary kid and he had a period of grieving and will continue. We talk about it often that he'll continue to grieve at moments in his life where it comes up. And, you know, if he decides that he wants to have children, it'll have to be something that brings it to his attention again, or, um, but it's sort of just kind of staying in that constant state of being aware of, of how it's making him feel, um, having the resources, but then again, keeping those positives um, in the forefront of his mind as often as possible. This is really, really important. And I'll interject a little bit. And I posted this on Instagram, so it's not a secret. And my students know, I hope, that I'm sort of sick. They saw it on Thursday or whatever, I think. But so how professionals speak to people that have any kind of diagnosis, it's really, really important. How you approach it, what you do with it, when do you say it, how do you say it? Um, I think when I went to visit um, my first doctor, within like two minutes of meeting me, he already said you have lymphoma. Without any preparation, without any conversation, just look at my neck, it's like you definitely have it. And I'm like, can we have a conversation about anything before that starts? And this is a really good expert in the field, in the best center in New York, cancer center. And he works with it so much that he doesn't like to pay attention to how that comes out of his mouth. And that's really, really important. And in your cases, we are doing it so we can create awareness, but that clinicians really need to be aware of it is what I was trying to say in terms of how they speak to people, how they speak to patients, how we organize knowledge about disorders and what is a disorder because that could mean so, so many different things. So yeah, it's important to understand that. Yeah, and you're, I just to to tag along to that, Elliot was told at his first appointment when he was 10 that he was gonna get testicular cancer by the, the children's endocrinologist. And of course, a 10 year old heard cancer. He didn't, and he didn't hear maybe, or there's a higher chance that he heard cancer. And that um, like working our way back from that, it's, it's a similar experience um, where it's just, the doctor was trying to be helpful in some way, but what, my son heard was cancer. And so that was like a three week process mm -hmm. to getting him to get move off of, of that concern. And 
onto like more realistic everyday activities. So that, that would be a huge step in the right direction to have people approach it with more um, understanding, I guess. And responsibility for how they, mm -hmm. they talk about it, right? And I wanted to bring back, this back a little bit to stigma. So, and then we can talk about being intersex or not, if you guys don't mind discussing it. So what's the difference between Ryan and me? I think we both are 6'4", if I'm not mistaken, or about 6'4". Are you 6'4", Ryan? Yes. Yeah, so we are the same height, right? You actually have more facial hair than I do. And we talked about it before. And <laughs> I don't have a XXY. And, um, and maybe the difference is that you actually um, take shots of testosterone, although I got mine on Monday because of my sickness, so my body could be a little bit stronger because I'm collapsing. And, um, and I get to be a male. I don't have to define it to anyone. I, I don't have to fight for it. And you're intelligent and so am I. So what's the difference between us? Why right? does that get to enjoy a label that you have to fight for? So. That's a transitional sort of statement to a question. Um, is XXY an intersex? Or should it be under the category of intersex? And what do you guys think? And are there individual cases on case by case basis? Or because that, that was kind of controversial a little bit at NYU. I think I texted you after. People were surprised that um, you were sort of speaking from like super male's perspective and making sure that people know that you're straight and not gay. But all that comes from the fact that you have to fight for it. And I understand that. Like, I don't have to do it. I can be whatever I want to be. But you, because of the discrimination and stigma, have to fight for the same things that I have just regular rights to. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so this topic, we talked at NYU about this. And this, this topic within our community is a, um, it's like a bomb with a short fuse. Um, it, there, I mean, I'm kind of, Kelsey, can you start yeah. it off? Yep, I was gonna offer that. But um, so you asked a lot of questions and I'll try to recall and, and work my way through. So first okay. is, it should this be considered intersex? I think the, the first stopping point is the difference in what intersex is defined. Um, so very practically speaking, um, the U.S. doesn't technically, in, in most situations, um, consider a sex chromosome disorder to equal intersex. So, so no. And also, in other parts of the world, it's defined, intersex is defined very differently. And so it does fall under that definition in other parts of the world. So yes and no. Um, I think, and, and then you mentioned certain situations, of course, there are you know, certain situations where somebody's um, reproductive organs maybe don't align with who they are or any other external um, pre presentation. Um, and so that can also happen in, in somebody with XXY, just as it can happen to anybody um, or anybody can, can feel differently about the way they're presenting than who they are. But where it gets sticky and where it gets hard is like you mentioned, sort of that fighting to be able to define yourself. So I think that's a struggle. I have not, like, like you mentioned, I haven't had to experience that. You know, I haven't had to fight for defining who I am because other people have defined me. And that's, that's where my defensiveness, I guess, comes in as a mom. Um, 
Elliot could be whoever he wants to be. If he were to identify, you know, different than a male, that would be one thing, but it wouldn't be because he's XXY. And so I think that's sort of where I try to draw the line in my head. Like I, Ryan knows I'm super, super liberal. Like I support everything. And I have a really hard time when other people label anybody. So I don't want anybody to label this community as something that they aren't able to advocate and label themselves. So that's really where I, where I get stuck or where I have a hard time. So this, the topic, the topic definitely. So here I am, like I've been working my entire life to be outside of a box, the doctors, the psychologists, like educators, everyone in my entire life, I've had to work three times harder than everyone else to have what I have. Um, and so I got bullied as a kid, but I'm glad that I, I wouldn't go back and change that because it, it gave me the thick skin to be able to deal with a lot of this stuff, especially revolving around this topic. Um, people in our community, we have a Y chromosome. Um, just because we have small testicles, you know, there, there is a, there's also a stigma of micropenis out there that we have a bunch of data that's going to be coming out soon that debunks that myth that XXY has micropenis. And that, that to so many men is such a, um, it's such like a, it, it, it hits you so hard when you read those things online, you, you don't want to open up about something that you have, even if you do open up about it, you you're then being told by everyone else that doesn't know anything about your condition that hasn't asked you about, hey, what's your life like? They just say, oh, you're intersex. Oh, you're this, you're that. And there's a lot of people in our community that don't wanna be labeled by like an I, um, you know, by the LGBTQIA+. Like they don't wanna be on that. And and they should have, the, you know, it, talk about inclusivity, right? Like we're being told by so many people that, oh, you're intersex, you're this, you're trans, you're that. Like, but then where, where is it for our community to have our voice? And when we open up and we try to have our voice, everyone shuts us down. Everyone says, oh no, that's not, you're not, you're not male, you're not this, you're intersex. There's a lot of videos on TikTok um, uh, that we've had to, I, I started to do it, but it's just absolutely exhausting the amount of misinformation that's being spread on TikTok that it's just like, I, you can't sit on there all day and, and constantly try to educate people that don't want to be educated. And so that's a, you know, in our community, a lot of men that have shared their stories have asked like, Hey, can you please take my story down? And I ask why? And they're like, I'm being told by other people that I'm this, I'm that, like, especially intersex. Um, and there's this, there's this connotation, like intersex is not male or female. Like there's, there's, like um, a lot of people label XXY as non-binary because they have an extra X chromosome. But then when you when you look at the other um, trisomy X, where girls have an extra X chromosome, they're not being labeled as like something else. Or the guys that are being diagnosed with Jacob syndrome, which is XYY, they have an extra Y chromosome. They, oh, there was a thing a long time ago that they were super male, but there's not there's not a push to label them and put them into the intersex box. It's only the XXYs. And so it's a very, it's, it's definitely you're, you're, when you're labeling people, whether it's XXY, whether it's intersex, whether it's gay, bisexual, whatever, whatever that is, 
when you're someone that doesn't understand what that person is going through and you label them because of what the book told you or what someone else told you about who they are, that that person just shuts down and wants absolutely like a lot of the guys don't even want to turn around and try to educate people because this conversation with intersex gets so argumentative in our communities on Facebook and a lot of our private Facebook groups, this one person that feels that they're intersex then in, in our community. And that, that's totally okay. That's the way that they want. That's the way that they identify and, and that's who they are. But then when they take their, I, like their idea and they go, Oh, well, if I'm XXY and I'm intersex, then everyone with XXY is intersex. And they put it into the Facebook groups and it just splits the water and, and people go on one side and other people go on one side and then they start attacking each other. And it's like, wait a second, we're here to, nobody knows about this condition. Why are we constantly bickering with each other about our differences? We should be focusing on our similarities so we can educate people outside of our community. And so that's how, it, you know, I speak passionately about it, but it's, it's a very, it's, it's hard for me, especially it's just really hard because I run an organization trying to help so many people and all the time throughout my whole life, it's been like box, 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 you're this, you're that, you're this. And whether it's like, oh, you're mentally retarded or whether you, you can't have kids or whatever it is, you're constantly being told by the outside. And that's, thank God I was bullied when I was younger because I, I was able to put my head down and go after the things that I wanted to do that I knew I could do regardless of what people were saying. Um, but not a lot of people have that um, a lot of people have low self-esteem. Not a lot of people have that. And so they're going to be listening to all these people telling them this stuff and they're not going to question it. They're not going to go research it. They're just going to be like, oh yeah, I guess I'm that. And they're going to be like, okay, why, why, why live life? Um, unfortunately, there are, um, a, there, there are guys that do get diagnosed and they do commit suicide with XXY. Um, it is there, and there, there are families that terminate because they look up, they see the, the, they see what it is online and they, they, they just focus on what their doctor told them. They focus. Oh, I don't want to have a child. that's going to struggle, not going to be able to live a normal life. Um, so that's, what's so important about doing what we're doing today. Mm -hmm. Thank you for this elaborate answer. And it's you guys, but it's also you, Kelsey, as a mother and family members and partners get affected by it as well. And the definition, who do you have a relationship with? What's your sexuality? I spoke about it at NYU too, whenever I post um, on my Instagram that Ryan is coming to give a lecture, I've gotten comments on DMs like, you have it too. Like, and so what? Like, it's not offensive in any kind of a way, but that's, and why do you do it? Like, do you have too much time on your hands? And, but I'm not offended. And so, but I am not even attached to it in that kind of way where you can only imagine like how a mom feels or partners or I don't know, family members and friends and stuff. There, there were questions, is that okay if they ask you? Yeah, mm -hmm. absolutely, go ahead. Huh, please. I, I'm having a hard time hearing now. Louder, please. Because I know sometimes they have a hard time understanding the, the concerns and like advocating 
could you repeat the, the question? I heard most of it, but how do I advocate? Um, if you go for a visit to a general physician, like how do you go about it and what are the issues or um, how do you advocate for it in case they're not trained properly? Is that what you meant? Uh-huh. Perfect. So Elliot's had the same pediatrician his whole life, which is I'm very lucky to have had that situation. So he knew Elliot before the diagnosis and, and now after. Um, and he really learned with us um, so that's, that's lucky. Obviously I live in, you know, even though it's a metropolitan area, I still live in Minnesota. So maybe the ratio of care supports the time that he was able to attend to that. But, um, I haven't had a ton of primary care concerns, mostly because I don't really go there for anything related to the syndrome. Do you know what I, so so XXY stuff is, is like a pocket of its own. And we go to the endocrinologist for that. Um, and then there are maybe some other like bone scans or things that they might recommend us doing lab work, but it's, there's not a lot handled for our primary doctor. They're just making sure we have what we need. Um, and I, I think they just pretend they don't pretend to know more than they know. And that's actually helpful. So we haven't had a ton of issues there. Does that answer your question at all? Yeah, thank you. There were other hands I was holding for, please. Yeah. I have a question for Ryan about what it looks like, like day to day to run a nonprofit that's dedicated to helping people with this condition. That's a really good question. I've always wanted to ask you that. I've never talked about it. Oh man, okay. That, just, I'm, I'm smiling because, um, so I was a chef by profession. I knew nothing about nonprofits. Um, I have passion for this and passion has given me the, the skills, even, even if I haven't had the skills, it's given me the drive and the skills to do what I need to do to make everything happen that's happening. Um, I learned uh, what a nonprofit was. I got to a point where the awareness was, I so I donated four years of my life with, to this without a paycheck. Without any finance, I, I, I did it on my own with my own money for four years. Um, I, I put all my own money into starting the nonprofit. Um, I didn't do it for any financial reasoning. Like that's where pure passion comes from is you just, you just put your head down and work. Um, and so I started the nonprofit. I got the lawyer to do all the paperwork, all the legal stuff, um, got a board together, which um, is small, but it works. And then I just started to have these ideas and start to talk. I, you know, I, I just wanted as a chef, like when you go to a new area where your friend lives or a part of New York and your friend knows like the best restaurants, that's kind of like my mentality of taking my chef world into this new world. It's like, I want to, I wanted to meet people that had this, but I did it when I first started it, I kind of did it for travel. I was like, well, I want to meet people, but I also want to like get to know the best restaurants that they know and all this. And then that kind of, that concept kind of changed. And I started to just meet more and more people. And then all of a sudden I started asking different questions to these groups of people. And then it, it just like ideas and, and things flourished from there. And then um, I inspired guys to be open about it. They were, they were like, well, if you're open, why can't I be? And, and, you know, the right guys at the right time um, came forward and shared their stories. So, but as far as management goes, like th this is a bedroom in my house in San Diego. 
Uh, Kelsey has been here and it it's it's uh, looks kind of like a classroom with sticky notes all over the all over everywhere because I'm visual so I have to write things down and tactically like tactically see them. Um, but I've I manage the Instagram. I manage uh, I pretty much do the whole nonprofit. Um, it is a lot of work and um, we're kind of sailing our ship back to the dock to build a new ship because we've um, that ship that we originally started sailing on is 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 too small for our community. And so we're kind of going back and we're going to be rebuilding a lot of things in the in th this year in 2023 to to kind of bring it up to where the level that the nonprofit is really at versus what people see. If that makes sense. Does that answer your question a little bit? Yeah. But but on, honestly, like anyone in this room that, that if you have drive and passion and you, you don't do it for the monetary and you just put your head down and you work hard and you get off social media and you just put your head down and you focus on what you're doing, you will get to a point where you are, you are satisfied with what you have created. And then you'll start to just fine tune things. And, and that's kind of like what I've done. I'm, I've, I know that I've made a massive difference in this community by just the last three years of having this nonprofit, but there's so much more that I want to do. Mm -hmm. Did you have follow up to it? Yeah. Uh -huh. What? How did your experience in culinary school affect the way you run your nonprofit, or what skills has culinary school taught you that you apply now? And we all gonna open nonprofits now after. <laughs> um, I want Kelsey to answer a little part of this because she's gotten to know me. But um, I think, like as a chef, you work. You know, I, when I worked in Nantucket, I was working 110 hours a week, and that is like those are grueling 17, 18 hours a day. So you, um, you know, when I when I worked a little bit in New York City uh, at this hotel, Madison Country was the restaurant. I don't know if it exists anymore. But um, you would go in, you would go in and work three hours, four hours for free before you even got paid. And so I worked in fine dining restaurants throughout my entire career. And you just had this passion and drive for the team and the food and just the quality of the standard quality of like, like I never worked in any Michelin star restaurants, but like the extreme fine dining. And so you were, you learn that early is on time and on time is late. You learn all these little things that it's all about hard work, determination, putting your head down, um, just going through the grind because that's what life is as a chef. It's, you're not going to compare it to other jobs or other things. Plus, as a chef, you don't get paid very much. So you're not doing it for the money. You're doing it for your love of food and, and your love. it's also the creativity. And so a lot of that, what I learned in culinary school and what I learned throughout my career, I've been able to kind of take analogies and I kind of, that's kind of where I want Chelsea to kind of, or Chelsea, sorry, Kelsey to come in is because she's, she's learning how I'm kind of, she's helping me. I've never worked in the corporate world and she has. So she's helping me take my like thinking and then process it into the, into the nonprofit world. Go ahead. Yeah, no. So that's a, that's a great question actually. Um, and I, some of the ways that I see it transitioning is like you mentioned, like Ryan mentioned that willingness to come in early, but more so that willingness to walk alongside someone and maybe learn the thing, not walking into a room like here I am the expert to answer all your questions, sort of walking alongside, listening, 
following and that work your way up mentality um, seems to be a similar thread between the two of them. Um, but we do a lot of chef. I, I smiled big when you asked that question only because we do a lot of chef and restaurant analogies when we're talking about the nonprofit um, because analogies work really well for us, you know, for my brain to his brain to get the message um, correct. We do use that analogy and, you know, the kind of keeping the the eye on everything as as a head chef and who are the people host you know like the hosts and who's doing this work I mean it all is so linked to any functioning system I think and having the right people um, being able to pull ingredients together um, or people together or skills together that's one thing that Ryan has um, a great skill in is pulling people together and saying like, I don't really know where this is maybe going to end, but I know this person has this skill or this connection and this person is really passionate and this person is here and like, let's see what happens. So I feel like that sort of, um, it's like building, like building a plate, like when you're a chef and you're, you have an idea for a special or you have extra food left over and you want to make it into a special, you want to make that special look good once it tastes good. And so you're trying to like, fine-tune where you put it on the plate and so we use a lot of I use a lot of analogies because I'm visual and then when one thing with Kleinfelder syndrome that a lot of us um, have is we have to use a lot of words to describe something very like short like it takes me a long time to tell a story because I have to tell all the intricate details of the story when a lot of people are like why can't you just get to the point um, and so I use I've learned to use analogies where I'm speaking visual and then the person that is on the receiving end can think visually as well and we can be on the same page. Throughout my life, there's been a lot of miscommunications with, because um, I haven't worked in the corporate world, I don't know how those people operate, right? And so I would say, but a lot of, I, say, I would say like a lot of chefs, whether you have XXY or not, probably have a hard time communicating with the corporate world. Is that better? Is that okay? We have like about 10 minutes left. Um, one question and there's more questions here. Yep. Okay. We'll, we'll try people, to go through them. If people, the people that get very passionate, let's say you get inspired by your guest lecture, how can they get involved? Like there's a lot of people in this classroom, like what can we do? Uh, what can they do to help if they wanted to? Kelsey, go ahead. Um, okay, so first, I my my first instinct is obviously learning as much as you can from the website and from YouTube videos and being sort of that safe space for anybody to talk about it or to treat this just as we would treat somebody who, you know, has um, anything going on, either something we can see or something we can't see. Um, as far as in your careers going forward, I think it's what Ryan mentioned, um, having that with which is is changing so much generationally i think um but having that person-centered approach is is so different than maybe the doctors that that ryan experienced or that even i've experienced with elliot um and focusing on the individual and then you don't really need to be the expert if you if you aren't an endocrinologist or a genetic counselor uh you don't really have to be an expert in Kleinfelters. you just have to be an expert um in how to work with people now, as far as practically helping, um, you know, I think that I don't know how to answer. So, Ryan. 
I mean, I would say like social media is great, right? So everyone in this room has probably got some type of social media account. So if you go to like the Instagram or the TikTok, like it's it's all about like sharing those resources. Or if you have someone that might have, you might like learn something that you might know someone that might have like some of the conditions that present themselves, maybe like just letting other people know that we exist, that, hey, we're out here, that you learned something rad and awesome in class, um, you know, or so something along those lines and, and sharing it that way. Thank you. Um, you had a question, please. Yeah, that's a that's a great that's a really great question. I'll try to do it really really fast. Um, so growing up, my parents when they told me at nine that I had XXY, um, at thirteen they never told me that I couldn't be a father. They always told me that I could adopt because that was what was available back then. I'm thirty seven, um, so they always raised me with like you could adopt if you want a family. Going forward, um, dating for me, I dated in high school one girl when I was like a junior. Had like a nine month relationship that that worked out you know for nine months like high, like anyone in high school um and then it, i dated a girl in culinary school for a little while for a year but i was always upfront with women i was always like straight up like hey just to let you know i can't have kids and and i would say like in my mid 20s like 23 24 25 is when that really like that i kind of i always looked at something like of the glass half full so i always looked at it like well, I'm not going to be the type of person that I can't have biological kids. I'm not going to be like, woe is me. I can't have kids. I'm going to be like, well, what if I tell people I can't have kids right away? And so it split, it kind of like it, the women that wanted biological kids, they just like left the scene. And I was like, okay, you're, they're gone. Like, oh, that, that one could have been fun, but oh, well, like, you know, nothing I can do about it. So it really opened the door for like the women that were like, oh, you can't get me pregnant. Um, and, and, you know, you can use your imagination with that one. Um, but no, it, like, it, but that's, that's a reality of dating when you're open about not being able to have biological kids, when the whole like system and the whole world is built around this whole, like having kids, building a family. Well, that's a lot of people, that's not what they want, or that's not what what's for them. And so I was just honest about it. Um, and I, I accept, I think acceptance, self-acceptance was a big part of that. It's just being open enough to be honest with someone right off the bat, because a, a lot of guys that have dated women in our community that don't tell them right away, when they tell them like a year into the relationship, it goes south really fast. It's like, why are you withholding this extremely like sensitive information from me? When like we, you know that we've talked about building a family together when deep down, you know, you can't have biological kids and you're holding that from someone, like that person deserves to know. Does that kind of answer it? Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Is there anything else? Because we have like five minutes that we haven't like sort of mentioned. Do you guys wanted to share with my class? Is there anything like specifically if there isn't, then we can maybe answer another question. Yeah, go for questions. Okay, please. So uh, the autism spectrum was, uh, mentioned so how is x x y spectrum how how does autism how how does autism how is, how is x x y on the spectrum like what how is the spectrum represented i think is that a question uh-huh 
um it's hard to it's hard to like put a a like i mean how do you how Could do you I, answer yeah i can i can step in here a little bit um so obviously we don't know a lot about the genetics uh, well i should say i'm not in that field anymore so i don't i'm not up on the genetics of autism and like that sort of situation but um we know there's mosaic and non-mosaic now for for xxy but then beyond that there's also just the way for whatever reason a body processes this experience differently right and so some people um are you know maybe not it's just like almost like a spectrum of life if that makes sense you know it's just not everybody is the same not everybody will have speech delays some will some won't not everybody will you know most people will need most most men will need testosterone um but there are some men um or some teenagers who don't need it right away because there's their body is producing enough and so it's sort of this um unanswerable question because it's all about how much the testicles are able to produce the testosterone and then how your body processes the testosterone that you have um, innately. And then if you get external testosterone, then what that looks like. And so it's just such a fluid um, experience, I think. And that's what makes it a spectrum. So for some people, you know, they really struggle and, and maybe that's lack of resources and lack of early intervention and lack of medical care and things like that. And for some, um, they could be in the same situation and be thriving because they never knew and they've just pushed and gone through it. So it's just hard to say um, the root of the spectrum, but there certainly is. And I would align it to, you know, of course, ASD, but also just like human nature. I think, I think that's good. There's one more thing, like if we were to take everyone in your room and take them into the gym and give them a basketball and have them shoot from the free throw line, like some people would be naturally good at it. Some people wouldn't. And so like you take that spectrum of people that are good and not good. And you kind of apply it, like, like Kelsey said, apply it to life. Like it's really, it's really hard. I guess I, you're probably asking more of like the symptoms of what someone with more of a severe than, than less of severe, but it's, it's kind of hard. Like it's, there's, there's people that grow out of speech, like they don't need it at a certain point. Um, a lot of it also has to do with parenting and environment, um, whether you have good parents or whether you have bad parents and what your environment of, of that situation can allow, or like Kelsey said, the services and things like that. Does that kind of answer your question? Okay. Yeah. So we have like two minutes left. So maybe, so we have time to say goodbye. I'm just going to say, yeah. because I didn't have a chance, Kelsey, you're such a good addition to this. You have a lot of knowledge, but there's also a lot of warmth that comes through. And NYU students said that as well. I just wanted to pass this on to you, so you're aware. And you also have coolness to you as well. So it's a really good combination, see? Exactly. Yeah. So I, let's focus on the coolness, I think, um, first. No, I appreciate that. I, I'm excited to be here and I really love talking with people and sharing sort of at least my experience. So you guys, are, uh, you both are amazing. So thank you so much for being here. I appreciate you and thank you for spreading the knowledge and need to get to people. So thank you so much. And Ryan, I will send you the stuff maybe tonight when I get home because it's eight fifteen here already. So yeah. oh, not a problem. Take your, take your time, even if it's tomorrow. Thank okay, you, thank everyone. You thank you. Thanks for having us. Thanks. See you.
Bye. Bye.